Welcome to Product Leaders Podcast, a podcast by FireArt Studio. We delve into the world of product leadership to help empower you to improve end user experience. I'm your host, Dimran Glinski. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dima Venglinski. I'm host Product Leaders Podcast. Today in our studio, Siva Grande. He is an expert in digital advertising and subscription revenue models with strong experience in general management, revenue development, and product management, and has managed P&Ls from scratch up to $350 million. Currently, he is a chief product officer of PlayFit Friends and online payroll and HR software. Before he got to work with such companies as Shutterstock, SoundCloud, Nokia, and Sony. Hello, Silva. How are you doing today? Hi, great to be here. Great to have you. Tell me about yourself, your working experience, your background, first of all. Yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, I've been working for the past 20 plus years, but I think maybe an interesting story is how I got into products, right? I started my career working in corporate strategy of a large telco telecommunication provider in, in France. And after a few years, I worked more on the partnership side. And then I was like, oh, I'd like to go more into the operations, the details, the day-to-day, etc., than pure strategy. And I joined a very, very small startup within Sony that was doing mobile streaming, personalized music service on mobile phones and also web as a B2B provider. And we had signed Vodafone. And I was in charge of basically the relationship, so more on the biz dev side, with several countries. So I had to know the product better than obviously the customers I was selling to. And this is really the key moment that kind of drove me to discover and product management was very new at the time that this was something I wanted to get into. And then fast forward a few years, I drew roles, but my the last 15 years and essentially the Nokia Maps experience. So Nokia had just acquired a small startup in Berlin that was doing mapping that became the basis of the mapping solution at Nokia became my first, I would say, maybe full or more product management experience. So I think it's an interesting story. And then I've worked and lived across seven different countries. I like change. So I've been doing product and design and kind of revenue management for the past 15 years now, but across different verticals and industries, always in tech. So that's a bit about me. It's interesting combination of design, as I understand you mean UX design and product management. How the design help with your main position as a product manager? Yeah, I think, look, when I started my background being in business, I came into product from that angle. But I think even though I'm not a designer by trades, I develop a strong affinity for design. There were a lot of experiences. And I think at Nokia on the mapping side, we had the specific context of this was the time where Nokia as a business, especially mobile phones, was falling apart. If you remember the burning platform memo, but our division on the mapping side was actually growing very, very fast. We were working with Microsoft, who were a service provider to the automotive sector and to others. And so we really had to think of key design items like the information architecture, the depth of the application. At the time, there was still the debate of like, do you have one search field versus two? Because it came from mapping, like a lot of design elements and experience elements that I think I fell into. And this uh, stayed with me. I think as a chief product officer, like we have to clarify that whatever the title, 
product means doesn't mean only product management, right? And there are different setups in different organizations, but I think design is as important, the same, I would say, level of uh, citizenship than product management is just what creates the value is the clarity of roles and responsibilities, the ability to create a diverse team with, in the end, a shared vision and desire for impacting outcomes. So I think that's really the important part. Interesting. And you worked with Nokia for several years, right? Yeah, over four years. How did working at such an iconic company shape your career as product manager? I think maybe a bit of context. There are two things that I think I kind of learned and took away with. As usual, I think specific context matters. We were primarily embedding software onto phones in the factories, okay? Because that was our key distribution channel. So what you learn when that happens is that you can never be late because <laughs> the phone ships. So, yeah. you know, in products, you have a lot of other industries and most other verticals and companies I worked, there was never that obligation to follow a very strict release process, which is good in some ways, right? So what you learn is the only way, because you cannot change the time, you only can change the amount of people and priorities or always more important, the scope, right? So I think yeah. always having, as it was deadlines over deadlines, right? Like shipping over families of like 50 plus phones a year, you learn you have to be on time simply because if you're not on time, you're actually out. So you manage scope differently. The second learning is because it was a time of huge change on the operating system, right? It was the death of Symbian, the negotiation with Microsoft to move to Windows Phone, and they were breaking changes between the first version of Windows Phone and Windows Phone 8, etc. I'll skip you the details. Essentially, we had to, the underlying OS on which we were coding the software was changing every year. So you learn a lot about change. You learn a lot about what is essential in an application to deliver the value. You learn a lot about agility, actually. So that, I think, stayed with me across all my experiences, even though the context, again, is very different, right? It was like 100% mobile. I worked in other companies that were like 95% plus web, where search engine optimization was a very critical item. Example, Shutterstock. I worked in companies like SoundCloud when I joined was, I would say, 80% web, 20% mobile. When I left, it was 5% web, 95% mobile. Yes, and that's majority through mobile apps, right? So you have to understand the context first of the industry and the specific company, as well as sometimes over time it evolves. Yeah, but if with those tough deadlines, it forces you whenever you want it or not, it forces you as a person and a professional. And then you become a tough project manager that is able to deliver everything on time, right? How often it happened that you met the deadline with all the features without any sacrifices to the scope? I mean, I hope the answer would surprise no one. Almost never, right? The question is by how much and what did you sacrifice, right? So again, like if all projects in the sense of it can be a user stories, it can be an epic, it can be like, you know, whatever key release were going 100% on plan and on time, it means likely you're not planning necessarily the right way. Okay. And I know it may sound counterintuitive to maybe some people on the business end, and I'm happy to clarify that. I would say it depends again on companies and level of projects. I'll give you an example. Like when we released a totally revamped version of our mobile app at SoundCloud, this was a dramatic change. We were for the first time clarifying that our mobile app was primarily targeting towards listeners and not creators. So we actually removed features. We shipped a bit later than anticipated. We had 
some element of backlash in the first months because of a very vocal minority of creators. But you know what? Like hypothesis we had on the project that it would be focused on listeners and drive like huge growth in listening time, etc. proved true. So we were a bit late. Yes, you should never lose sight of what are your primary objectives. And I think this is one of the difficulties in product management is how do you split your brain between the day-to-day and the mid-to-long-term? And this is irrespective of the level you're at, right? It's obviously a bit different if you're a junior PM or senior PM or principal or chief product officer. But there is always that really hard tension, right? The day-to-day takes you, right? And how do you take whatever your ways, and there is not one solution, how do you ensure that you always keep track of either, you know, the mission, the North Star, we have many words to describe that, to make the right trade-offs. This is hard. There is no like single solution to answer your question. I would need to know the context. I would need to explain the context of my own experiences. So I hope that that makes sense. Yeah, makes total sense. I noticed that you usually work on your recent places that you used to work. You usually work in senior positions. So I'm curious, how close are you with your end users as a chief product officer? Yeah, it's absolutely a great question. I think, again, depends a bit. You know, I've worked mostly in, in B2C. I think in B2C, it's naturally easier to be, personally, at least that's my opinion, I think it's easier to be closer to the customer because usually you're one of them. What you need to pay attention to is we all, every source of feedback has some biases and that includes your own experience as a customer. You're not building the product for you, right? But I think it just helps relate a bit more than in some cases in B2B. I think there are two important parts that are complementary when you're maybe a more senior, I would say, exec in product around customer empathy. One relates to actually how close you are to your teams and some of the details of their challenges and their outcomes and projects, right? Because this is also an important way to be close to the customers, you know, through their own projects, products, data sources, etc. And then what are the panoply of means and channels where you can get customer feedback, right? From talking to customers regularly yourself to, for instance, I joined Payfit a few months ago. How many shadow do you do and on how regular basis you do them with several internal teams, right? Uh, We do shadow with customer service teams more regularly now. How do you collect, I would say, quantitative data? How do you do user research? And how do you ensure that you develop almost like the infrastructure and the foundation for customer empathy being part of the day-to-day of more and more people, right? Including your own. And we all have a tendency to focus inwards at some points. So am I meeting enough customers, for instance, like myself right now? The answer is no. But I know it's an important development in my next few months. So again, it depends on the context. I think customer empathy is critical. Depending on the stage that you're at in a company, right? From a very early stage to a bit more late stage, some elements remain while others evolve over time. You know, you have a very different view of how frequently you talk to customers in a very early stage i'm looking for my product market fit than after i would say okay so that we have a little bit more context and talk real tell me about your current company yeah what it does yeah yeah. so the core i would say focus of payfit is to solve an incredible endpoint for especially entrepreneurs and small and medium-sized companies so we're very focused on the zero to hundred employees segment in europe where payroll, especially, that's our core offering, is a very complex topic. And usually, the only way 
you have to answer that pain point is to work with specialists, accountants, etc. Right? There is no fast solution that delivers that, I would say, that experience for non-payroll experts. So this is what we are focused on. And obviously, as part of that journey, we developed several other offerings that extend beyond payroll in terms of, I would say, what is called in the industry, HR information system. So enabling not just the entrepreneurs, but also the employers to employee relationship and taking away a bit the friction of like the time it takes to handle those topics that are on one end, not sexy. On the other end, as all less sexy topics, you talk about it when there is a huge pain. And then you realize also that the help and the support you need to deliver those experiences when you're an entrepreneur to scale your company. Like the success of any company is tied to the clarity of the mission, the way you manage people, etc. So you want to remove a lot of friction on processes that no one finds sexy, like payroll, and then enable to focus on many other things, including how you manage that employee-employer relationship and grow together. So that's what we do. That's cool. Actually, whether it's sexy or not, I believe it depends whether you had this experience or not, because I had to sign a contract with a guy from Ethiopia, and we are a Polish company. So we tried to do it by ourselves, but you know, semi-countries, jurisdictions, and different legal frictions. So we tried deal product. I believe they are similar to yours, right? They are a bit different. The business model of companies like deal or remote or other, mostly US companies, is to enable, to ease the hiring of freelancers slash permanent employees across multiple geographies by creating, I would say, legal entities that simplify that journey, right? It's a bit different. It related the field, but quite different. Okay. But anyway, we tried it and it was like, mm -hmm. for me, I'm CEO. I also take care of operations a bit. It was extremely sexy because they solved it just like that. And we just hired a person being a Polish company including and following all the laws of both countries. Yeah. I mean, what can be better? So this kind of operational pay points and payrolls maybe doesn't look sexy for owners, but for those who deal with that day to day, it's, I mean, it's a big deal. No, totally. At first, I'm glad you find it sexy. But more seriously, I think it's like, sometimes if you have not encountered a pain, or how painful can it be? It's hard to realize the value of things going smooth or forgetting, right? And one of the elements in payroll is a lot of local specificities, a lot of regulations that change over time. So that also means that from product management standpoint, working very closely with legal and compliance and keeping track of that and having ways to evolve the experience is really critical, right? We want to enable as much customer autonomy as possible, but there's a lot of parameters that change over time. That's one reason why we have, you know, at Payfit developed a low-code platform to enable some of our staff members to be able to iterate fast if there is a regulatory change on top of, I would say, a more standard platform. Okay, got it. Sounds helpful. <laughs> what attracted to this company in the first place? Yeah, I think two things, but maybe before clarifying them, a bit of context. I've been working the last 15 years out of my so-called home country. I mean, the one I hold the passport, France, and so, and the last eight years in the US and New York. So came back to Europe for family reasons and got contacted by a payfit 
two things attracted me. The first one is really related to the interest and the complexity in a positive sense of the product strategy, meaning like if you think of payroll and a set of HR services, they are partially the form of almost an operating system for small and medium-sized enterprises and companies and entrepreneurs. You can extend either yourself or through a platform approach, which we are adopting with a lot of integrations and partners over time, a very interesting offering. So I think the, the fact that the product strategy is inherently interesting and complex, and there are many ways to achieve the mission. And the second is the quality of the people that I interacted with during the interview and the kind of a sense of a unique combination of humility and ambition that is part of the values. But you know, when you interview with, with companies, with people, it's not that often that you, besides seeing values written on a website or on a wall, that you literally experience them almost equally in every single conversation you have. So I think that's the other part. Yeah. And I believe you missed the mother country, right? I'll be fair. Like, yes and no, you know, it's every city I've moved around so much that I've learned to call home at many cities. Paris and New York are two homes in a way. And as usual, right? Like what creates a value is not to, to look back and say some, one thing is better than the other. You have to understand the context. The diversity creates, I think, you know, creates a lot of value. So there are things I tried to take away from each of my experiences, professional and personal, each country. And there were different phases of my life. So now we're in France, moving forward, part of a new journey, a new adventure with a great company. And I think it's just at times, for sure, I compare, but it's about trying to take the best in each experience. A long-winded answer, but hopefully it helps. Yeah, I understand that. I'm a professional immigrant as well. Let's call it like that. So as an immigrant, I'm interested what countries you like the most right now. I mean, liked the most for living, not as a tourist, obviously. But what is your personal favorite? I've been asked the question a lot considering I've lived in many countries and cities. I think it really depends on the stage of your life. I really, to talk about like maybe Berlin, Paris, and New York, the three cities I've lived the longest in, New York has an incredible energy and drive. And this sense of everything is possible and positive attitude that I think is like gives a lot of energy to people. It also takes a lot of energy because the pace is fast, but I think it gives a lot of energy to people. And I think in a professional context, this is a work environment that I've learned to discover and enjoy. But equally, at the time when I lived in Berlin, it was like, I think the Berlin tech scene was one of the most developed already at the time in Europe and still is. I had the chance to work with, you know, at SoundCloud and Nokia with great founders that a very international environment. I think at Nokia, I had like 25 nationalities in my team at the time. And I think at SoundCloud, I had literally like 17 or 18 nationalities as well just in my teams. And I think that there's just everywhere I go, whatever the country, this is something that I think that I need and enjoy. There are differences in approach, right? I think without going in too much into prejudices, I think the way of working in France and in the US is quite different with cultural context differences and advantages on both ends. I would say one thing that I'm very, I think, direct person and I behave the same way at all levels. I know because I'm grown up in France and studied in France that we have a tendency to to have a lot of complex discussions, debates, and the power of hierarchy. And I think you always need to understand the intent of each person and culture so to take the best out of it, right? Like I think the critical thinking and the debate is something that is super helpful. Following hierarchy for hierarchy is not the most helpful. So I think again, it's not about judging what is best. It's like 
what you like, and we're all different, what you enjoy and what you can bring and leverage between experiences. I think that's the most important conclusion on that. I totally agree. You answered my question, obviously. I believe it was a little hard for you as a direct person in United States because we work with US clients a lot. <clears throat> and I don't know how it works, personal relationship, but in corporate relationship, people tend to avoid friction, I would say, and tend to not say everything in your face. So I've been in New York once and I had several situations when I felt like I'm rude, but I'm not actually. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that first there are many, even in the details, there are many ways to be direct. And I think, look, in communication, you know, we always say that the recipient is always right, right? So the feeling is yes. as important as the reality. I think, again, in tech, in New York, which is, I think, specific context, right? When you talk about the US, it's a bit like if you would talk about Paris or Berlin versus other cities, even in the same countries, there are differences. There are differences in company cultures as well. So, you know, I had the chance to face in the companies I worked at in the US to people are not afraid to confront ideas, but there is a desire to resolve things fast. So there is maybe, it's not just the, oh, let's avoid conflict. It's more like, okay, we're okay to decide fast, even though it's not perfect. And I think that's important to understand. Again, every company culture is a bit different. It's not just the, the country or the city that defines everything. Yeah, sure. Do you have any interesting insights about your domain, maybe connected to geographics, the domain and its users? Yeah, I think maybe it's interesting. Like I've worked in very small scale, high-end B2C environments, right? That in a way have more similarities with B2B. Meaning like if I look at, let's say, Yield Street's very high-end, very high lifetime value and, and obviously customer value over time with the smallest pool, right? Versus Shutterstock, millions of customers, lower lifetime value versus SoundCloud, hundreds of millions of users and much lower monetization potential, right? And that has an impact. And then you layer on dimensions like platform, like web versus mobile, that obviously have impact and differences in how you do product management, right? Especially if you have a native app or not. You know, Shutterstock was very, very web driven, and therefore you have a lot of, I mean, a lot of parameters that relate to search engine optimization. That honestly, in other contexts, whether it's Yield Street for me or PayFit now, that it's not that SEO doesn't matter; it's just a lot less important, right? In your product development process. So that I think is really, really important. Here we have, you know, in a B2B setting, what's interesting, I think, is one of the commonalities of all my experiences is that I describe them a lot as two-sided marketplaces. And it's not necessarily always pure marketplaces to clarify. But at PayFit, we obviously, the segment or so-called like persona of, of the admin, right? Whether it's the CEO, the entrepreneur, or sometimes the in a slightly bigger company, the payroll specialist or the head of HR, but we also have the employees, right? That want to see their pay slips, that want to obviously track and put their absences, their time of request, their time tracking, etc. So you always have to think, what are my priorities from a product development process? Like same with listeners and creators at SoundCloud, right? The creators were the way we created the ELO effect at first in the company. But then we tilted the focus towards listeners because that's where the scale potential. And we had sometimes back and forth, right? At a different time horizon. 
So I think you need to understand, especially always, and that's core of product development, but also to be honest, the business, like where do you spend your precious efforts and focus on? And that answer is changing over time. And it cannot change every three days because otherwise people are obviously losing track and you're not being very diligent. But you need to be explicit about those times of change. And, you know, any companies at any scale has priority problems, right? Like there's always way too much to do for what we're able to do. So that's the core skill that you have to develop over time. And the key is to have as clear context as possible and clarity of the rational that led to your decisions. Yeah, I believe in Shutterstock and SoundCloud because they are marketplaces. This priority is tough call because it's not a priority of launching features or like creating new design or changing the price. It's a priority between two groups of users where the both of them are very important. So you wouldn't hurt any of them, right? Creators are important because this an essence of your content then your users that pay for this content also important. And this is, I believe, would be very interesting to have a golden formula, what you can do and what you can't. Yeah, I think the hard truth is that there is no golden formula because the formula changes over time, right? But as an example, you know, when I joined SoundCloud and Syme, there was essentially no monetization. I came on board to lead those efforts. And we had essentially three streams, right? Greater monetization mostly through subscription still exists today and has scaled quite nicely. And then we developed two streams on the listener side, consumer side, so-called, subscription-based and advertising-supported, right? That's supported. And, you know, when we looked at, if you go to the essence of it, what is the primary value, again, at the time, and it changed over time, that you have to deliver to the creators is they want more listeners, right? That enables more monetization. So that some of these elements obviously simplified now is what led to us focusing more on the listener side for two years. I would say, you know, over 85% plus of our efforts were dedicated towards listeners, never losing track of what is the impact towards creators. That's where you need to always be clear about what is your primary objective? What is your primary measure of success? But also what is the audience? And sometimes the secondary objective or KPI, you should also not lose track of it. But adding that clarity of order or stack ranking is one of the hardest thing to do, but one of the most essential thing to do in product management. This is a little bit interesting that I'm a user of SoundCloud. And I remember this moment because I was following the news about this company. And I remember this moment of that company was on the edge of its existence because of money. So now I'm talking with the person who is responsible for its success, current success, because they still exist. I believe they had problems like five or three years ago, some time ago. I was there at the time. So I mean, to clarify, like I contributed to things, but it was a team effort. And I think you also need to have context, right? Music is a very difficult business on the margin side, right? So there's a lot of money. The success of Spotify, obviously, is a testament to that. But there's a lot of rights complexities. SoundCloud was originally created with the intent to have a slightly different model, more based on derivatives work, etc. So there was a legal framework and gray area that is still not 100% clear to date. So there's a lot of parameters that meant the gross margin. I mean, the margin in music is really, really hard, right? And so it's a bit at the time, 
it's like an arms race how much fun can you raise and under which condition etc so we had some obviously ups and downs i think what is amazing is that it's not just about money right it's about the cultural impact that you have and you know i honestly i don't know all the details and i think there is some public information but soundcloud is roughly a 200 million dollar business today that had a massive impact on the world and a service offering that cannot just be measured, let's say, on the billions of revenues that Spotify may have. So kudos to Spotify for having cracked that way better. But I think, you know, there are other measures of success while recognizing that's part of the learnings and failures, like not all companies succeed at all their goals. Yeah, totally. Probably SoundCloud could be the one of the most underestimated companies because look at it, it's the same as Spotify in terms of content, maybe there are more content because you can upload it or there you can be a creator and it's more easy. You can upload podcasts over there. I mean, music podcasts, more than one hour files. And this is why I love Spotify. I listen to electronic music. So I like those big sets. And on Spotify, there are no sets. But somehow Spotify is a multi-billion company and SoundCloud is relatively small, right? Yeah, these are actually directly related, right? In business, it is much more difficult to monetize user-generated content because the framework from a legal standpoint, from a copyright standpoint, is a lot more complicated. The one company that has massively cracked user-generated content is YouTube, right? And they have managed to associate user-generated content with official license content, right? And SoundCloud has done the same, but obviously not with the same scale success from a monetization standpoint, right? And in a way, the genius of Spotify has been to crack the licensed music content where it's, I would say, easier to succeed than UGC monetization. It doesn't take away any of their, the fact that they led that trend and kept differentiating, etc. But I, I think it's very important in content to differentiate user-generated content from licensed content. Like, that's a core difference. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know anything about the licensing of music, but I believe this is complicated area. Yeah, it's very complicated. I think for me, there's a lot of commonalities between that and even some of the things I've done at Yale Street, right? Or at Payfit. You have several industries that are heavily regulated, right? So when I worked at Yale Street, this was financial services and a specific area of fintech, alternative investments, private markets. And we were regulated by the SEC, right? SoundCloud had a lot of, in the music industry in general, there's a lot of rights that are local at either the label or the publisher level. So the rights complexities and the legal framework complexity defines some differences. Whereas when I worked at Shutterstock, this was obviously user-generated content, but with a very different model where we essentially buy the rights and give ref share with a lot less regulatory limitations or framework. So again, I think that's important context for you know any product managers that listen to the podcast. There are big differences, right? At Yield Street, we could not ship any feature without a full compliance and legal review of the feature and the copy. Nothing could go out, right? It impacts a bit your development process. It impacts the way you work slightly, right? You think of experiments in a different way, for instance, right? Uh, the scale matters. In small companies, like as much as I love experimentation and maybe testing culture, you're just limited in what you can do versus when I worked at Shutterstock or at SoundCloud, where we had massive traffic on several of our core experiences that enabled the culture of testing and experimentation that was just different. Yeah. Okay. By your opinion, 
I mean, I understand that there is a lot of context, but by your opinion, what has been the most impactful product that you have worked on and why? I think there are honestly many answers, but I think I'll pick two successes and also one failure because I think it's as important to reflect on the failure in terms of impact as the, the positives or the good learnings. I think the launching monetization at SoundCloud and moving an established service that was continuing to scale over hundreds of millions of users to a monetized service at scale across subscription advertising is likely one of my proudest moments. And that was done with an amazing team for sure. Working with Microsoft, on, we were the only team at Nokia when we obviously dropped Symbian and moved to Windows Phone. We were the only team that was contributing to the core operating system of Windows Phone outside of Microsoft. This was a huge learning. And I think related to that, a failure I learned a lot from, it's a long time ago, but when we... So Nokia has got spun off by Nokia and, and is a company that still exists that is actually very successful called Here Maps. We did that rebranding actually when I was there. We led that. And I don't know if you remember, but Apple decided to enter the Maps space many, many years ago, but to get rid of Google Maps as much as possible on their end. And when they did their first release, they essentially screwed up. The quality of the experience was really bad. Yeah. And I don't know if you recall, but Tim Cook himself wrote an open letter of apologies and recommended, which is pretty rare at Apple, to use two competing software, one of which was Ear Maps, because we had developed our first HTML5 version at the time. So you wake up and your product is recommended by Apple CEO, you feel pretty good. But yeah. this was actually a huge fail because we had launched something that was okay. And then we, for various reasons, we did not sustain that investment on that platform and we missed the boat. And obviously Apple Maps obviously fixed a lot of their problems very, very fast. So this was a big learnings on, you can have a moment of pride, very, very short, and actually, it's a large failure you can reflect on over time. So my message on that, and that marked my experience, is that never celebrate too soon. It's a marathon. There's a lot of things that you should celebrate, but you always need to keep the context in the long run. Yeah, so that it wouldn't be 15 minutes of fame, right? Correct. What are some of the failures you and your team have experienced that you think many product managers are headed for? I mean, it sounds very generic, but I think we you learn always that spending a bit more time on clarifying your priorities and defining the scope of things and what you would focus on versus deprioritize, like what is the essence of it, whether you call it MVP, whether you call it... And I find this is for me one of the most important learnings over time. Several of the personal failures or team failures were actually linked to not making enough choices in the beginning and or not being explicit about the rationale of the choices we make. So for me, that's the biggest learning in relation to failures. Okay. Any advice you would give to product managers early on in their career? Look, I think the two things that are difficult, like, again, splitting your brain between day-to-day -day and medium to long-term is something that you never fully master, simply because it's impossible, I think, to master. And there is no magic formula for it. But thinking about it very early in your career actually is very helpful. And it's not that one is better than the other, right? The second part is PMs are, in a way, multi-specialists. You cannot be specialist at everything. You usually have to focus on a few anchors, right? Some PMs in some fields have to be more technical. I mean, if you work on search and recommendation, you'd rather be a more technical, data-driven PM, maybe, than in other cases. Like I think the understanding of business and data 
is becoming a must. And so really understanding both from a competency and communication standpoint, how you can learn, what is it that you're going to impact, how you can communicate it to different stakeholders, whether they are business or non-business, and how you can, I think, you're at a point where everybody has slightly different value system and ways of communicating, and not everybody relates to the same topic in the same way, right? An engineer may relate a lot less to the revenue impact of a feature than a business person, and that's okay. But how do you connect the dots, right? On the communication and between the mission, the impact, the customer centricity, I think it's something that is very hard to master and a constant learning. So I think that that would be an advice to always get feedback and ask for feedback on the things that you can improve in that regard. Okay, thank you. Um, is there any framework that you can use to connect in those dots or essentially you should go with your guts? No, I mean, look, there are plenty of frameworks available, but I think whether you work on an epic documentation to a presentation, you always need to look at the different elements from a customer standpoint, the metrics, the measure of success, as well as the impact and drivers that are most important. So I think the learning is much more, there are plenty of frameworks to help you back rank thing, whether it's on business value or other frameworks. So you can find a lot of them, obviously, online is how do you practice some of them and then never lose sight of culturally the outcome is more important than the process. So process is helpful, but if it's, it becomes a blocker on outcomes and culture, then you likely have to rethink a bit the process. Yeah, here I can 100% agree. What is one mistake you've made that taught you the most? I've worked for 20 plus years, so I can tell you that I've made a lot of mistakes. I think from maybe more products standpoint, one of the biggest learning is actually you should always take decision faster than you think or than you do, right? You just need to be very clear what type of decisions you're making. I don't know if you're familiar with the type one, type two kind of Amazon framework on type of decisions. 95% nope. of decisions that you have to make on a daily basis as a PM, or actually it's not just PM, are revolving door. You can take a decision, you can come back on that decision. They are not... It's an important decision, but they are not engaging to the point where you can never come back. And there are very, very few decisions where a decision leads, leads you to a specific way where it's almost impossible to come back or it's very, very costly to come back. Focus your time on going deeper on those because you cannot afford to make mistakes versus on the other, actually, you can afford to make mistakes. Obviously, we want to do as little as possible, but the key focus is to learn fast. I think the speed of the learning culture is the most important element in product management. So again, be explicit about that, whether it's type one or type two decision, I think is a very important learning. Interesting. I used to use Eisenhower matrix for making decisions of what to work on in priority. And it actually, I believe it teaches us to the opposite. It teaches us to make decision a little bit with thinking less faster, but to work on more global tasks, I believe. And I used to work on this methodology for a year, I guess. And I have to admit that it took me back because, I don't know, maybe I wasn't the person who is the president of United States. Maybe this is why. Maybe you have to be on some very high position with a lot of stuff going on and a lot of tasks that you couldn't pursue. But it was 
too slow. Look, I think learning is tech is a lot about speed. And at times we tend to oppose speed versus quality, which I understand is a topic and a debate. But very often the answer is around scope, not around quality, right? You want to compromise on scope, not on quality. And I think very, very few companies through actually the ups and downs would tell you on most of the projects that you could not have gone faster. Like you could actually have made more choices to go faster. And the key is obviously everybody wants to go faster in some capacity. So it's easy to say that. The question is, what choices do you have to make to go faster on most things? And then on a few things, you have to go slower because they are so irreversible, impactful that it's not about analysis card. It's about like you need to take the time to consider a lot of effects and therefore you have to adapt any framework you have. And I think it's a key learning as a professional with, with 10 years of experience now over is yes, follow some frameworks, but don't follow them blindly. Frameworks are there to help your framework thinking, not to give you all the answers, right? All frameworks have context as well in their development, uh, why they happen this way. So you have to know a few to pick which one applies to which situation. And that comes with experience, I think. Yeah, now I understand. Now I'm smart. But I was young and stupid. No, I don't think it's like... I mean, methodology... Some type of smartness over time, right? That's where you want diversity in the team to challenge you, to debate, as well as in some cases, like, hey, you have to trust some players in the team who have that experience. So again, it depends. Yeah, I agree. We are almost run out of time. So the last closing question is, who in the world of digital products would you most like to take to launch? To take to launch or to be taken to launch with? I was kidding. I think there are a few companies that I think have done incredible job. And then there are some individuals that, you know, you always project that tech has a tendency to personify success, I think a bit too much, whereas it's a lot about teams. So yes. if I take examples like, look, what Amazon has built is like phenomenal. And I think some of the customer experience has been incredible. I've lived through it personally. While it was a commercial failure, the design paradigm of Windows Phone, I think, has been like mind-changing. The importance of typography, a lot of changes that now are actually core parts of iOS and Android come from Windows Phone. Maybe I'm a bit biased by my own experience and closeness to the topic. I've had the chance to work with incredible designers at Microsoft and Nokia platforms. I would highlight some startups like some task management software. I mean, they describe themselves a bit broader than that, like ClickUp, I think are amazing. So in a funny way, I'm not answering with names because I really think that there are plenty of people that are the unsung heroes that we don't talk about, that are not in the press because everybody talks about Bezos, Musk, etc. And it's kind of boring, right? In some way, I think it doesn't represent the full nature. I'd, I'd rather talk about like, you know, without giving names, some like, key leaders at companies like Atlassian, ClickUp, Amazon, and so on, than the people that are in the press. Okay, it's totally understandable. I agree with you. There are a lot of people who are behind the success of every company. So then call the company. Yeah, I gave you some names. Like, okay. do you want more names? Like Amazon, ClickUp, Atlassian. Always a good question I ask in interviews is what are, I think LinkedIn has done an incredible job also on product management side, especially with monetization complexity. So a a question I always ask is like, what are the top 20 apps you have on your phone and why, right? And why do you like them from a a product design perspective? So I give you some of Figma is an incredible company as well. 
there are plenty of incredible companies. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. I enjoyed this conversation, a lot of insights, interesting information. It was great talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you, Dima. Product Leaders Podcast is brought to you by Fire Art Studio. I was the host, Dima Ventlinski. To find out more about Fire Art and how we aim to build a brand that will contribute to the world with useful products that empower people and make their lives easier, visit fireart.studio. Search for Product Leaders in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you never miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fired Studio, thank you very much for listening.